0: very thankful that Jesus, his presence is very real and here in this room by his spirit. We're going to pray. I invite you to pray with me before we open up the Bible to find the Savior and would you join me? Jesus, thank you for being here with us this morning Thank you that you're ministering to people. Thank you that you're the greatest pastor, the greatest priest and king, prophet. Thank you that you're the son of God. Thank you that you're the savior of the world. Thank you that you know us all individually. Care for us, Lord. Care for us corporately. Care for this church through the preaching of your word. You're the God unchanging before and after time. Same God of the Old Testament, same God of the New, same God of the church now. So use your word, your timeless word, to work. We pray in in your name, amen. Well, not too long ago, um, this popular Christian organization named Crossway Uh, which is the same ministry that uh, publishes the ESV Bible, Um, they conducted a survey which surveyed more than 14,000 people. And uh, in order to do some research and gain a deeper understanding on the subject and topic of prayer amongst Christians, Crossway, in their survey, asked a series of seven questions to those who participated. I read the survey uh, this week, and I believe that the first question was actually the most revealing one. The question was this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your prayer life? 10 being the best, 1 being the worst. Your answer is totally anonymous, so you can be honest. Uh, What number would you choose? Survey showed that the most popular answer among people was 3. At a close second was the number 5, and uh, tying in dead last were numbers 9 and 10. I think it's a pretty revealing uh, question and also statistic. After the study was over, uh, the survey actually concluded that only 2% of people, Christians, would say that they're very satisfied with their prayer lives. And a much larger percentage indicated a moderate to low satisfaction. And so why would I start the sermon off like this? Well, it's most certainly not to um, disheart- dishearten you or, or make you feel bad. Uh, but rather, I begin the sermon this way to say, if you struggle or feel discouraged in or over the area of prayer, your frequency of prayer, your quality of prayer, your practice of prayer, you're not the only one. You see, although prayer in the life of a Christian is one of the most pressing and important issues, somehow for many of us, it ends up getting mostly overlooked, undervalued, passed by, and or added in when we can fit it in. And so here's my goal for us this morning. Um, My goal most certainly is not to uh, guilt trip you into a more disciplined prayer life, Um, and it is certainly not to give you a motivational speech about uh, praying, where then after you hear it, you can turn to yourself and say, self, I have to pray, I'm going to pray, i got to pray more, I'm going to do this. Uh, But rather, my goal in visiting this topic of prayer is to reveal to you the good news of the gospel in it. In other words, I want to show you why prayer actually is a gift From God, which is meant to bless you, edify you, strengthen you, help you, support you, encourage you, equip you, and empower you to fight sin, help you trust and lean on the sovereign will of God as you follow the Savior, etc., etc. The prayers and blessings of grace of prayer itself go on innumerably. Most simply put, this morning, my goal. It's to reveal the grace of God offered to you in prayer so that God himself, through this means of grace, would draw you to your knees. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at verses 32 through 42 together. And for those of you who take notes, you know that I'm proud of you. The title of this sermon is The Gift of Prayer. Three things I'd like to show us from this text this morning are this. Number one, that it's possible. Prayer is possible. Number two, that it's necessary. And number three, that it's full of grace. It is possible, it is necessary, and it is full of grace. We're going to begin our time by reading the story up front again. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And then My brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you that prayer is possible. Last week we stepped out of our series and our study of Mark. And and this week we have evidently jumped back in. And so as a refresher here, I want to remind you that we have now reached the end of Jesus' life and ministry. Chapter 14, the one that's in front of us here, marks the beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross. And just two weeks ago, the last time that we were in it, Christ Sat with his disciples and ate with them over the Last Supper. He administered the means of grace to them. And here in the story, um, this event takes place right after that event, right after the dinner. In other words, this is the same night, right after dinner, that the disciples now have followed Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, and here after wine and food are feeling warm and full. And uh, as the story unveils for us here, we are introduced to this topic of prayer. That's what this section um, is primarily about. Jesus arrives with his disciples in the garden and in verse 32 looks at them and says, sit here while I pray. And Then after taking Peter, James, and John up on a head with him a little further, he went off and prayed alone. More than 10 times throughout the gospel narratives does Jesus interact with the topic of prayer. But only two times outside of this event here has Mark recorded Jesus praying alone. Once in chapter 1, verse 35, and the other one in chapter 6, verse 46. But now here we are at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, just hours before his death. And Mark, the author, gives us this. Why? Why is Mark showing us this? What is he seeking to reveal to us? Well, Mark here is Giving to us as readers a strategic and intentional picture of the biblical role of prayer displayed in the perfect image bearer's life. In other words, Christ, the Son of God, the book ends of his life and ministry and the content itself were categorized or characterized by prayer. Beginning, middle, and now here at the end, we see Jesus prayed. And he didn't just pray anyway, but in a specific way, we see Christ alone here in prayer. Solitude, Jesus created, carved out, intentional time from his busy calendar, away from the pressures, away from the noise, away from the distraction, and God alone to be with his Father in prayer. Jesus here is up on the Mount of Olives. That's where this garden was, which was a familiar place to Christ and his disciples. They had been there a number of times before. And I mean, if you think about this here, this makes sense, right? Jesus is praying. He's sinless. He's holy. He's dedicated to his father's mission. He's a spiritual man, a religious teacher. He is doing the thing that we would all expect him to do. But then we have verse 34. We're After Christ took Peter, James, and John on with him further, he then looked at them and told them to remain and watch. In other words, to stay awake. And from the context, we all should know through study of this book, we all should understand what this means. In chapter 13, Jesus taught the disciples that staying awake or being watchful was an instruction and or reminder to stay spiritually alert. Jesus just got done seconds ago announcing to the rest of the disciples that he was going off to pray. And so here he says to the three, remain here and watch. But the disciples didn't get it. And so in verse 37, when he comes back, he finds them sleeping. He wakes them up and says to them plainly in verse 38 with grace, watch and pray. Before we uh, journey into understanding both the physical and spiritual slumber of the disciples here, what I want to point out to you first is not just that Jesus prayed and the disciples didn't, but even more that prayer is possible. James, that sounds confusing. Uh, Why would you uh, say or teach us uh, such an obvious thing? Well, because uh, although we all know that this idea is true and ascribed to it intellectually, many of us, because of repeated failure, busy lives and calendars, distractions and or other things, have come to believe that intentional and or extended periods of time in prayer away from everyone else and everything else is not possible and only reserved for spiritual giants. It's not true. Jesus was not the only one here in this text who was to pray. Here he invited the disciples to do the exact same thing. He would have never asked the disciples to do it if it weren't possible. One man named John Stark and a in a book he wrote called The Possibility of Prayer, said this, Prayer begins not with us, not in working up energy or congratulating our effort, but with God himself. He has called us to himself. He has made prayer possible. He invites us, not the other way around. You see, the world clamors for efficiency and productivity, but the life of prayer by worldly definition is neither efficient nor productive. Instead, we learn Prayer calls us to watch and wait, to listen, to taste, and to see. Things that are not productive by any modern measure, but are necessary and transformative. You see, prayer as Jesus displays it here is much more than thinking about it and just fitting it into his calendar. Here we can see that there is intentional participation and engaging with God. Through the issues of his life over prolonged periods of time, alone and away with God alone. Here, Jesus is teaching. He is discipling the disciples into this rhythm and practice of grace. Disciples, it is possible to stay awake and pray to your heavenly Father at night. It is possible to wake up early before everyone else and pray to your God in the morning. It is possible to set aside your lunchtime to pray to God. The use of Gethsemane here up on this mountain is a place for such encounters. It contains this lesson. Jesus had a place. Having a place, a normal place, is good for our prayer discipline and practice. And uh, I know that I'm a pastor, you know. I know that my work and life looks way different. I know that it's my job to pray. But I'm telling you, I, I'm living in the same world as you are, you know. The kids still need to be taken to practice. The, the, the uh, emails pile up overnight. The babies demand all of our attention and energy, work, pressures fill up to the brim. But I'm reminding you, as Christ is reminding us from his word, no matter how busy, frenetic, or pressing life may be, no matter how tired or overwhelmed we may be through our current circumstances or situations, prayer indeed is possible. Jesus does not reserve this topic or discipline of prayer for only pastors, priests, and monks. He calls all of his disciples to eagerly and earnestly get alone with God and pray. Prayer throughout the scriptures is repeated and God uses it to call the church. Men, what if one night this week, maybe after all the kids are sleeping, you're with your bride, maybe you guys read books, maybe you watch Netflix or whatever you watch. What if you, after everyone's asleep and it's just you and her, said to your wife, hey babe, would you like to take some time to pray I know that's intimidating. I know it's vulnerable for men to do that. But what if you trusted God that it's good for your marriage and your family and life? And so, as a practical tool to help you pray, what if you then went and got a pen or a piece of paper and listed with you and your wife the top five pressing things in your life and prayed through them? Tonight, when you go to bed, Before Monday begins tomorrow, what if you set your alarm clock 15 minutes early, five minutes for coffee and 10 minutes just to pray alone with God? What if this week at work you changed locations or maybe shut the door of your office or went into the parking lot or found a quiet place around the building or whatever situation might fit you best at work and thought about the beauty of prayer feeding you? In other words, what if you fasted one meal to pray to God in your busy work day to give your life to pray? Or not fasted, just ate up pretty fast and then just spent the rest of the time with Jesus. Prayer's possible. What if we, instead of looking at our calendars and seeking how to add or fit in prayer to them, thought about the whole topic differently and put in prayer first, and then thought about all of the other busy, frenetic, hustle-bustle things how to fit them in around it. God is gracious. Stay at home moms. I know it's hard. Moms, dads who work, I know it's hard. There are special seasons of trouble and demand that God gives special grace to. But the macro perspective of our lives as Christians who follow Jesus is to be described beginning, middle, and end with prayer. Alone, away for extended periods of time with our Father in heaven. Three applying questions for you. Um, Do you spend intentional time praying alone with God? Number two, do you have a place? A normal place. Number three, do you have a time, rhythm, or way of doing it? These things are good for you. They'll help you practice a discipline. I'm saying that you were meant to pray. Your soul was designed to pray, to commune with God. It's part of why you were made. It is necessary. It is essential to your spiritual well-being. Jesus here invites you to it. I'm going to now move into point number two to show you um, this necessity, how essential prayer is actually to us. Amen. We're moving now to point number two. Uh, well, we're here in the midst of this passion narrative in the garden, just moments before Jesus' trial, ending with his crucifixion, and here Jesus says a few words, both in and outside of prayer, to inform us of its function and purpose. If you look there in verse 34, Christ says this, My soul is very sorrowful even to death, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so what is it here that drives Christ to pray? The answer, most simply put, is his personal suffering lived before and announced to the all-powerful and sovereign God, if you look there, uh, the Father is the one whom Jesus proclaims as being in control of all things. And so in light of his coming death and this eternal chasm that he was about to experience between him and the Father, in light of this eternal p- pain and, and grief and sorrow that he was about to know and was now beginning to know, Jesus gets on his face and or his knees and cries out to God, if it be possible, please let it pass. And it's here where we see that Jesus knows that prayer is indeed the place that evokes God to move and act according to his will. I heard a famous preacher this week put it this way. He said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the the, the muscles of omnipotence. Which means God has designed prayer as the means by which he accomplishes his ends. And if you look there, The Father's will is Jesus' main hope and focus. And while that be true, he is still not hesitant to express and or announce his desires, his feelings, and pains. This is healthy prayer. Hope in the sovereign plan of God and knowledge that he cares for and responds to our lives and situations. This is how David prayed all throughout the Psalms. Psalm chapter 42, this is what David says, and this uh, verse captures both of these ideas. My tears have been my food day and night. For while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David had two things here. Hope in God's sovereign redemptive plan and also the grace that gave him um, or provoked him to announce or declare or to confess his uh, trials and pains. At this moment, Jesus seems most perplexed before his death, yet he is still conscience by faith of god's ultimate vindication through his sovereign will this my brothers and sisters is what the spirit does in our hearts through prayer and as far as the disciples here they're not praying at all they're unaware of this impending crisis they're also unaware that jesus's words in verse 27 are now coming true that they would eventually all fall away it's starting to happen right here in the garden and after Jesus returns from prayer for the first time and finds them sleeping, he reveals one of the main purposes for prayer. Coming back, he looked, at, uh, looked and said to Peter this, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice here that Jesus is using Peter's old name. The name that he had before following Christ. Jesus is trying to get his attention to wake him up from his spiritual slumber to the reality that is present and at work in his lack of prayer. And that reality is either two things. Number one, that Peter believed that he didn't need to pray. Or number two, that he knew he needed to pray, but really didn't see the work, the worth, the value, the weight, or the potential efficacy in it. So instead... He decided to sleep. And you see what Peter and the disciples here failed to see is that they were in the midst of spiritual warfare. Satan was using this temptation of sleep and comfort to blind them to the reality of the moment, which was that in just hours from here, the cosmic battle of the ages was about to take place and be fought. You see, Jesus said, pray, stay spiritually awake. And Satan, in light of Jesus' instruction, used the disciples' warm bodies, full bellies, and heavy eyelids to get them to sleep instead. Jesus wanted them to see and realize that their battle wasn't really against sleep. It wasn't a physical, ordinary battle, but indeed was a spiritual battle, a spiritual thing. Jesus here is showing us that the spirit and the flesh wage war against one another and keep us away from God through ordinary things. Jesus here further shows us that one of the main purposes and functions of prayer is to keep us out of temptation. In other words, if you're facing temptation... In a moment or season, it is right for you to pray extensively. Young men, I have you in mind. I'll say the same thing, but in an opposite way. Prayer is for the purpose of leading us into righteousness and is the place and means by which the Spirit fills us with supernatural empowerment to obey and submit to God's will, even in the most trying and or painful of times. In other words, prayer awakens us to the reality of life. What is the reality of life? The reality of life is the living or dying of our souls and the triumph and progression of the kingdom of God in this world, which is currently at hand. In layman's terms, what I'm trying to say is that there is a battle right now happening in the spiritual realm over your soul, and if Satan can keep you from praying, you will end up spiritually dead. If Satan can keep you from praying, you'll end up spiritually dead. In that survey I mentioned earlier on, another one of the questions that was asked to the people was this. What is the biggest impediment to your prayer life? Four possible answers in the survey. Distraction, indifference, busyness, and loss for words. 57% of the people said Distraction. 15% said busyness, another 15 said indifference, and lastly, 13% said la- loss for words. I, I just want to let you know that all four of these categories are categories of potential spiritual warfare. In other words, they are not just ordinary things that keep us from praying, but they are spiritual things that Satan uses to hinder and deceive us and keep us from living and flourishing before God. You see, Satan wants to get you to believe that there are more productive things th- that you can do than pray. Satan wants you to believe that prayer doesn't matter or actually really change anything. Satan wants you to believe that you don't have many words to say to God. But well, that's not true. You know that's not true. Just think about how many times you think about life during the day. Beware of this spiritual trap which leads to death caused by stupor and uh, and, and slumber. There is nothing more important or pressing in life besides word and prayer. You cannot be be spiritually alive if you don't pray. You cannot spiritually flourish if you do not do what Jesus does in this text. You cannot, if you're not a praying Christian, you will lack a desire for righteousness and be unable to fight sin. If you're not a praying Christian, you cannot know God. If you're not a praying Christian, you'll be ill-equipped in hard times of suffering. Why? Because prayer is the means by which you and I get to fellowship with God. Prayer is the means by which the Spirit comes to awaken our souls and fill us with the presence, promise, and grace and person of Christ. Prayer is how God uses the Spirit combined with his word to bring us to life, keep us awake, and wage war for the gospel and the kingdom of God. Do you want to live triumphantly? Do you want to live victoriously? Do you want to be uh, filled with joy in the midst of sorrow or crisis or suffering? My encouragement to you is pray. Pray not just intermittent little peeds of prayer but get on your knees alone with God and let God your father take upon himself your heavy yoke do you want to encounter God's love be filled with peace know his promises and delight even in hardship pray do you want to know how to have a healthy marriage pray do you want to know how to walk with God faithfully pray be a good dad And mom, pray. Faithful employee, pray. Serve the church, pray. It's not a message of condemnation. It's just a reminder how you can live and fight sin through the gospel. Jesus here in the garden is the furthest and most excluded one can ever imagine from God's presence. And yet what I want for us to realize here is that in this very moment in his life, he was in fact closest to God's will. Which means even when you don't feel like praying or you feel cold and distant to God, it is right for you to pray. Even when you show up before God and you're at a loss of words and your thoughts are everywhere, it is right for you to pray. Let me tell you why. Because God has given you an opportunity to exercise your faith. There in that moment, you're beating your body into submission to say, God, I don't feel it. But I still believe because my emotions do not determine truth. Your word determines truth. And your word promises me outside of my feelings, even when I don't feel it, even when I'm feeling cold and distant for you, when I pray by faith, you are working. And um, maybe you might say to me, James, I've tried this before. And I I get before God. And I know that he wants me to pray. And I actually want to pray to you. But nothing comes out. Um, Or maybe I start a sentence and can't even finish it because another idea comes in my mind and I end up thinking about that. Thanks for saying that. Everyone experiences it. Me too. Um, It's almost like uh, when I was growing up, I used to play sports and the coach used to put us on the soccer field or the baseball field. And uh, before practice would begin, he would tell us to start warming up. And so he'd give us one to three drills. Almost always, when I started the first drill, uh, I didn't feel like I wanted to do it. Usually the second drill, I start to feel a little bit warm. Third drill, almost there. But before I knew it, while I was in the midst of practice, I was running, full sprint, sweating, enjoying it and performing. This is like prayer. You get before God, you don't know what to say. It's hard to get a start. But if you just hang in there, if you just keep praying, whatever you need to pray, or whatever comes to mind, sometimes, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit comes. And before you know it, you'll be praying about more things that were on your head or heart than you could have ever imagined. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Press on in prayer. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The promise is when we pray, the Spirit comes, and He rolls off our tongues if we just persevere. Hey, stay awake. Um, Wait for God and watch Him work in prayer. I just want to encourage you forsake warm blankets. (laughs) It's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. Pushing the button on an alarm clock is spiritual warfare. Um, If you want to fast, it's a really good idea. God uses fasts. I don't know when the last time you fasted, but Jesus said when he leaves, it would be right for the church to fast because when they fast, the helper would come. (laughs) When he comes, it would be better for Christ, better for him to come than Christ himself to come. And so fast and pray. If you want to talk more about it, I'd be glad to do that after after service. That was point number two. I'd like to finish our our time in and point number three, and i um, like to show you the grace of prayer, which is the best news in the whole entire world. Well, as we conclude, what I'd like to do is uh, finish up by reminding us all that, that most importantly, prayer is a gift, and in this gift is God. In other words, the reason why we pray is not to pray. The reason why we pray is to encounter God, if that makes sense. We don't depend on prayer. We depend on God through prayer. The fullness of God's grace end of Jesus Christ is offered and applied to us in the gospel. In verse 41, uh, uh, after the third time Jesus comes back from prayer and finds the disciples sleeping, he says to them, enough. You see it there. In Greek, the word can be translated as a phrase to mean, what's the use? In other words, hey disciples, I told you three times to watch and pray, but why keep asking you to do something you clearly won't? Verse 42, get up Let's go. And after his disciples then got up and listened, Christ resolved to meet his fate in the garden which awaited him, granted to him by the betrayal of Judas, where Jesus met uh, handcuffs and chains. From here on out, in this point of the gospel, uh, Jesus is going to travel towards the cross alone. And the last thing I want to point out to you here is how Christ, on our behalf, experienced the pain of eternal separation from God the Father in order to apply and guarantee us eternal fellowship with him forever. If you look back there in verse 36, for the first time in this book, we have Jesus calling God Abba. In uh, Aramaic, it means daddy. And up and to this point of history, there was no evidence of the term Abba ever being used to address God this way. To the Jews during this time, this phrase was only used within a family or household context. And so if any Jewish person would have heard, religious person or Jew would have heard Jesus praying this way in the garden, it would have been totally inconceivable and totally disrespectful. And yet here we have Christ showing us a new way to address God. Daddy. As a, a little child, would his father with love dependency, with simplicity, with informality, from the heart, with confidence. Jesus calls the Father, Abba, to reveal the level of love and intimacy within his relationship that he shared with God. But here's the thing. Here in this moment, Jesus knows what's about to take place. In verse 34, Mark records Christ as being greatly distressed, sorrowful, even to death. Luke, in his gospel, says that as Christ prayed there in the garden that his tears were like blood. And so why so grim? Why is Jesus so hesitant to approach his final destination in Jerusalem where up until this point of the book he has marched so resolutely toward? There have been so many people, countless people, who've come before and after Christ who have encountered and embraced death with seemingly more confidence than this. And so what's going on here in Jesus? Well, Jesus in the garden is not in despair merely at the thought of death, but rather in what this death would have to include. You see, Jesus knew that in order for him to complete the will of the Father and save humanity, there was in his death, uniqueness, different than anyone who ever died or came after him in history. And that is that there on the cross, he would have to drink the cup of God's eternal wrath for the sins of the world. You see, it is one thing to be filled with fear as we consider our own sins before God, but can you imagine what it would be like to stand before God and have to give it an answer and account for every person and every act of evil that has and ever will exist. This is what Jesus was doing as he prayed in the garden. He was preparing to drink the cup. This is the cup that he was praying for to be passed from him. But in light of this coming event, knowing the will of his father being fully obedient and submission, uh, submissive to him and his role, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And there on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced eternal separation from the one whom he shared perfect love and intimacy with before the beginning of time. There on the cross, Christ was abandoned by God his Father and took upon himself his eternal wrath experienced unimaginable darkness, evil to cosmic proportions, and this is why on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this is the gospel, that the perfect and sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, died and suffered in our place. He was a child, but he became an orphan. He was sinless, but he died as sinful. He was blessed, but he became a curse, all for you and me, you see, it was sin that kept us separate from God. But out of an act of his great love and mercy, while you and I were yet still sinners, Christ died for us to ransom and reconcile us to God the Father once and for all and perfectly. He washed us in his blood. He forgave our sin. He cleansed us and set us free from guilt and condemnation for missing times of prayer or discipline in reading the Bible. And he was raised by the Spirit to new life, which he gives as a free gift of grace for those who count on his work alone. And now by faith, through that exchange, we have the Holy Spirit, which is the same Spirit that indeed rose him from the dead, and we are called children. It is the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit which Romans chapter 8 says, we all have as we belong to the family and kingdom of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because Jesus died and was raised, we can be confident, even when we miss spiritual disciplines, that God the Father never rejects us, never abandons us, never shames us, never treats us with the silent treatment, never pushes us away and tells us to come back when we can get more spiritually disciplined and pray more and read more. No, because of Jesus Christ, we are covered in righteousness, and God the Father always says, Come, I love you. God the Father loves and accepts us and calls us children because Jesus Christ paid the price. We are always loved, always invited, always affirmed, always accepted, always cared for, always near. God always invites us to himself in prayer, never takes that invitation away. Because of Jesus Christ, we can stand before him with bold confidence. Amen. Amen. As Christians, we pray not because we have to, but because we get to. And the opportunity of prayer excites us because the gift that we get in it is God himself. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for this church. Thank you that our faith is a supernatural faith. We pray that we would pray. We pray that you would make Parkview Church a praying church. It would happen corporately and be supported throughout the days of the week as men, women, and children run to you in prayer and spend time alone with you. Oh God, may the power of the gospel call us to this. May your grace and kindness lead us to repentance. May we boast in Christ and approach your throne boldly because of him. Bless us this week to pray. and May we experience your promises fully. In your name, amen. Amen. Please stand. May Christ be all and I be nothing. His glory shines and vessels weak. May Christ be all and I be nothing.